The title of this evening's talk <clears throat> is Through the Looking Glass, <coughs> The Reality of Not-Self. And the looking glass being a reflecting mirror that one can step into, as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Over a period of years, during my childhood and on through adolescence and into the teen years, I had a recurring dream many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back and smaller and smaller, myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror endlessly. At times I was kind of amazed and fascinated and intrigued. And if I thought about it very much, uh, I felt quite perplexed about this dream. But mostly I was really just quite interested interested enough that it's the only dream that I clearly remember experiencing from my early years. This dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life, beginning when at the age of 16 I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write in high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian. And right then I had the distinct feeling of touching into a deep sense of coming home and the dream of looking in the mirror, myself looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. This evening we'll explore the not-self nature of it all. The reality that for many people seems the most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though it may be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of not-self may often be fraught with a subtle or maybe a more overt fear. In its essence, this truth is so basic, so simple, and that even with just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's really kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the veil of concept, of an idea, of belief that separates us from the reality of not-self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, 
them, him, her, that, it. Within the context of our immediately immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined context of the possible future or the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished self-identities, our clung to and cherished hopes, fears, and beliefs. It's important to recognize that in relinquishing our attachments, we're not asked to throw our self out. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as our self, everything we believe to be our self, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for a moment. What we call our self on one level is a subtle and yet clearly discernible active phenomena or process that we can sense, feel, see and know directly through our practice. One aspect of this that's readily available to know experientially is the body as a process made up of many elements. The earth element with its characteristics of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The water element with its its characteristics of flowing and cohesion. The fire element with its characteristics of heat and coolness or coldness. And the air or the wind element with its characteristics of supporting and pushing. With each and all of these elements being in constant flux in and with themselves and in relationship to each other. Our so-called self as our body or my body is in constant flux. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. So, in truth, there's really nothing to attach to, nothing to cling to. And as you may know, at least to some degree, essentially, all of the Buddha's teachings and practices lead to this. The essential aim of the teachings and practices is to look in the mirror at our self and look with such sincerity and humility and willingness that we begin to see ourself or more accurately begin to see 
through ourself by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're attached, without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're identified with them. It's actually very simple. Maybe not so easy, but very simple. So we're sitting here in retreat or at work, at our desk, or at home on the couch. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness or lightness is just heaviness or lightness. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. Rising and falling is merely rising and falling. Memory is just memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these things, these occurrences, are merely, are just themselves. And as the great uh, Thai meditation master and teacher Ajahn Chah said, things are, there is merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, There's no real, no real, true, sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, we could say that there's no real, sustaining suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through this erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. And some words from Chinese sage Nan Xin. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. We experience this and that, everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only so much? Can we look into the mirror of ourself without claiming ownership and without investing in interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see. So, for instance, we think of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my joy, my fear, my friends, my house. This is some of how we create self again and again. This is how we become. 
how we know self. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's the understanding that their not-self is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma, looking into the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there's a self and that things belong to a self will gradually untangle, will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention. It's only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what is being observed, what is being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling. Merely Heat, merely an ache in the chest or a tingling moving through the body. Merely a thought or arising and passing. No duality as it's sometimes spoken of. Not two. Just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, bodily sensations, and other sense door experiences, feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal processes can the power of a deeply rooted egocentric thought, habits, and self-centered inclinations be loosened, be reduced, relinquished, and at some point, finally, eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual, direct, experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality, that we come to know self. We come to know self, not self. And then for just a moment or two, and eventually, finally, it's not all about me and the painful contraction 
that accompanies me and mine that's based in the fear of losing something. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind is free. And from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. It's a heavy load, a burden to carry our self around. This body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all the hopes and all the fears, We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around the things of life in the form of thoughts, feelings, various opinions, perceptions, beliefs, believing that they're mine, me, myself. There's a kind of sting that we feel in hauling around all of the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership, a sense of identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake. But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. And we keep looking and seeing, living life, and in fact, living life more freshly and more fully in the immediacy of here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. In life here in retreat, and in our life outside of a retreat setting. in a poem by Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield. She calls this, Only when I am quiet and do not speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons the blue mug, hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder dreaming and waking the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment, 
that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not the false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off if I glimpse for even an instant the actual instant. As if they believed it possible, I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice as we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. So for instance, do I reside in the intestine? or the rumbling sensations therein? Am I in the thigh bone, or the skin, or the head hair, or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath at the nostrils, me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space, or the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body? as metta is offered to a dear friend. Well, we might think, okay, I'm not the foot, not the sensation of the in-breath, but certainly my mind, certainly my consciousness is me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? I think it's fair to say that one of the things most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. But the truth is that the very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed, unborn, So for just a moment now, close your eyes and look into your own mind heart, just for a moment. Maybe for a moment you sense and see its empty nature. like experiencing zero, as one of my Burmese teachers, Pawak Sayadaw, says. In the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan, he says, when you look at zero 
you see nothing. Look through it, and you see the world. And so the Buddha, coming directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. It too arises and passes away, moment by moment, like every other conditioned phenomena. It too is dependent on contact with some object through one of the six sense doors. No matter how gross or however subtle that object might be. It too is dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It too is dependent on the mental labels, constructs, and clinging that arises in the conscious mind through contact. To make this very clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six doors of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind or mind phenomena consciousness. And some two uh, very short uh, suttas from the Buddha. The first, uh, the Buddha and one of the devas are having a conversation. A deva, in the Buddhist uh, teachings and understanding, a deva is a being that's um, quite pure and has quite a fair amount of insight, uh, understanding, but is not yet free from suffering. So the Deva is asking the Buddha some questions. The Deva says, what produces a person? What does he or she have that runs around? What enters upon samsara? What is his or her greatest fear? From what is she or he not yet freed? What determines his or her destiny? And the Buddha responds to the Deva. Craving is what produces a person. His or her mind is what runs around. A being enters upon samsara. Suffering is his or her greatest fear. She or he is not freed from suffering. Karma or kama determines his or her destiny. And the second short sutta is uh, between the Buddha and his chief disciple, Ananda. And the title of this one is called Empty is the World. And Ananda asks the Buddha a question. He says, Venerable Sir, it said, Empty is the world, empty is the world. In what way is it said, Empty is the world? And the Buddha responds, It is Ananda because it is empty of self and of what belongs to self that it is said empty is the world. 
and what is empty of self and what belongs to self? The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. I, consciousness, I, contact. And the Buddha goes through each of the sense door consciousnesses in this way, ending with mind consciousness. And whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is Ananda, because it is empty of self and what belongs to self, that it is said, empty is the world. And from the perspective of an 8th century Chinese sage, another Dhamma mirror. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there is really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, and no absolute life. and a wonderfully simple poem by contemporary Buddhist poet Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image in relationship to the words uh, that I'll be speaking. And if an image doesn't come easily for you, please don't struggle with it. Just simply allow a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So, beginning with your eyes closed. And visualizing or in some way sensing 
an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. Letting this fill your heart, your mind. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, (coughs) highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, this felt sense, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all of the gems at all of the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. And now let the image, let the felt sense dissolve. The intricately interwoven tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self. This is the ground of understanding not-self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, I'm sure that many of you find yourself more and more often acting only from the heart of compassion because of the growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there is only relationship, 
There is only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. There's no separate, no isolated, no independent you, no separate me. And from 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And now the second guided meditation. Again, closing your eyes, take a couple of breaths, relax. In the mind's eye, the eye of wisdom, which is centered in the heart, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. Relaxing and staying open and present with this. Now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving, changing shape, dissolving, new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization, this felt sense, let the mind, the heart, rest in the openness of the sky, in the vast openness, not fixing on any cloud, just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away.
if at any point all of the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space. Now let the image and the felt sense fade away. Just let it dissolve. In sitting for a moment, letting the heart, the mind open wide, allowing awareness to be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. is aware. Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body. to the breath, back to hearing, and just sitting quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back and open up and face into the looking glass with willingness and with humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in and we keep looking. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. We see that everything, all things are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there's no thing that satisfies, no thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in a sustaining way. We understand that we can't depend on anything in this world or in our own body-mind continuum. 
the world around us, to render us fully and truly happy and at ease. And so we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror at ourself, going back and back into this looking glass of self, mindful awareness becoming clearer and more open, more all-encompassing and at the same time more spacious. Instead of finding some solid, static, separate something or some solid rendition of I or me, some solid, fixed, eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. In this, there's no solid, separate I or other. In this essential emptiness, there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease, even in the midst of the arising, changing, and ceasing happenings of life within us and around us. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems, really the greatest problems, the greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, solid, static, separate entity. This is really the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the core loneliness that human beings feel. I'd like to share a a story, a true story, about a friend of mine. This friend was suffering from this core loneliness, and so he decided to um, seek the help of a therapist for the first time in his life at the age of about 40. And with the advice from friends, he picked a therapist who had uh, a Buddhist spiritual orientation. When he called to make an appointment, he was told by the secretary that it would be helpful if, if helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern with him for his uh, first first therapy session. So he arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different sizes, (laughs) shapes, and colors. And he set them down in the waiting room. And then he went out to his car, and he got another load and piled the second load on top of the first load. And he he told me that, uh, and he told the therapist that... um, He had to uh, go around collecting baggage from various friends and family because he said he didn't have enough of his own. (laughs) So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, this is really true, When when it came time for him to go into the therapist's office, he of course took in all of his baggage with him. 
And at some point, during this first session, the therapist, in her wisdom, asked my friend to open up all of the baggage that he brought in with him. And so he did this. And he found that there was nothing inside any of it. (laughs) A very wise therapist. It's certainly not every patient or every client that you can do this with. But this man was obviously ready for such a pointing out. When we begin to taste the truth of not-self, when we touch into this simple reality, often at first there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of great relief, like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and really not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand the load and its nature and just simply set it down. I'd like to offer uh, an old teaching story uh, regarding this that I really like. This is the story of a woman who had practiced for many years and had some very powerful expansive and even some illuminating experience experiences but she felt that she had not yet reached the goal and she was getting up in years and feeling that there wasn't much time left and so she really so wanted freedom in this lifetime so she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one who she heard uh, was able to turn the mind, turn the heart, to the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her very arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down. And just as he passed, the woman stopped and called out to him. And he stopped and he turned towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived on the top of the mountain. And she explained that she was on her way up uh, to see this being because she really wanted to know the deepest truth, the ultimate wisdom, so that she could be fully awakened and free in this lifetime. She explained that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion and anguish and striving. And she told the old man that she'd heard that the wise one up at the top of the mountain might be the one to reveal this to her. The old man stood still, listening, looked at her briefly. Then, taking his time, he slowly turned around and continued walking down the mountain, but just for a few steps. And then he stopped again, and he briefly stood still, and again slowly turning around towards the woman. And then he very slowly and carefully took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again, 
and walked on down the mountain toward the village. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. We keep exploring and living life, sensing and seeing and understanding. And in fact, living life more freshly and more fully right here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, of all things, and is the relative aspect of understanding, not self. This is what connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. I'd like to close the talk this evening with two short pieces from a collection of the Buddhist teachings called the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Seclusion is happiness for one content, who knows the Dhamma, who has seen, Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. And the second piece from the Udana is this. This is a teaching that the Buddha offered to his disciple, Bahia. In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that indeed, there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia there is for you in the seen only the seen, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, you see that there is no thing here. And you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing here, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this, nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. 
This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment or two.